Welcome everybody to the XYZ Experiment Podcast. This is Dash, your millennial Gen Y, and I'm so excited and pleased to have as our guest today, Reka. Hello, Reka. Hello, Dash. <laughs> Hello, Fiona. Welcome. <laughs> Very excited to be here. So Fiona is here as well. And um, before we get started too much, um, you know, we always love to have our conversations about generations. And so, Reka, which generation do you belong to? See, this was a difficult one for me. I think I am an X and a Y. <laughs> so I'm at that cusp of being an X and a Y. Um, I'm shaped by my Gen X parents. So that was my influence. So, you know, latchkey children, supervised reasonably minimally. I hope my mom's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, so brought up with kind of, you know, a sort of freedom uh, being a Gen X yeah. sort of um, household. But I also identify with certain Gen Y uh, characteristics, you know, um, particularly my uh, desire to jump onto anything that's new, but uh, technology, yeah. challenges, can't pin me down to one spot, itchy feet. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, a bit of both. bit of both. Mm-hmm. And I had a question for you around, um, because you grew up in India mm-hmm. and um, you came to Australia as an adult. Do you feel the generations also are evident in Indian culture? So I think the... I think where you grow up kind of shapes your Y or X characteristics, right? Yeah. So uh, the reason why I say I'm more X is probably because India is a couple of decades sort of, at, at that point in time, uh, India was a couple of decades behind because we didn't have the same influences at the same time. Yeah. So I think, you know, you were, so there are sort of big events, world events, you know, like the HIV pandemic or, um, you know, sort of, massive events that would affect the world yes India would be you know hearing of it or we would hear of it as children growing up and be affected by it but I think the smaller influences were different for example television came to my household in the 19 late 1980s Mm. but someone who would be Gen Y uh, would have had exposure to the television before that at least a decade before that in Australia so they would have had exposure to maybe the sitcoms earlier or the talk shows earlier, which we had a little bit later. And I've wondered about this because I kind of relate a lot to the Gen Y, a Gen X people here. So I get along with the Gen X people more than the Gen Ys, although we shared the Gen Y generation. Yeah. Yeah, because I think your your your, back, your culture and your, what your exposures are really shape your sort of characteristics, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like as someone who's Sri Lankan born and, you know, I have grown up in Australia, one of the things that I often reflect on with my parents as well is that there's a a cultural traditional overlay Mm -hmm. that I think sometimes might come before a generational expression. Like there's just particular ways you're expected to behave. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering whether or not that might have also influenced say, the Gen Y characteristic of being more spontaneous or taking up things or being, yeah. Yeah. So, for example, I think, you know, you kind of, you have some characteristics that you try and, or or you just have because you're exposed to that kind of environment or the influences that you get from, you know, different exposures on maybe television or books or music or whatever. 
but you still have that sort of cultural expectation to be within a sort of box. For example, if I were to say I was very independent and that was expected of my sort of time where girls were becoming independent, there was a lot of feminist uh, movements and you know we were we had an Indian prime minister who had just been assassinated of what a decade before um, so you know you, you you see all these things and you're feeling that sort of um, feeling of independence oh I can be something more even if I'm a girl but at the same time you're expected to be within a, a sort of cultural or social ex societal expectation that you as a girl have certain rules to follow yeah so it's a it's there is a clash between what you can be because you see all these other so you hear and see other women or other girls doing things but you also have your within your society certain expectations that would be difficult at that point to change yeah yeah so you identify with a particular generation but there are also expectations that you have to follow so you could identify but not necessarily practice not necessarily practice yeah no, not at that point in time yeah i think it's different now yeah and do you feel like it's different now because you're in australia um, I think it's different now in India, uh, and I think it's different now for me because I'm in Australia. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think it's different now in India because India has caught up after the internet exploded onto our scenes, and I think it's now easy to just be on par with everyone else in the world, with what you hear, what you see. And so you're influenced a lot quicker. You, you know, it's different now in India. And in Australia, you, because I'm here, I can now reflect on my my sort of developmental years and you know look at it with a new perspective really amazing yeah. that's fascinating isn't it like really fascinating to think of it that way just thinking about australia didn't like having a woman prime minister only happened recently yeah. and you guys had it decades ago yeah. so did Sri Lanka. it's incredible yeah. yeah yeah it was fascinating you know we had you know sri lanka uh, india pakistan had women leaders mm. yeah yeah um, yeah, so pretty amazing. And really well-known leaders. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I knew exactly who you were talking about, you know, when you yeah. were saying about being yeah. assassinated and that. think, well, I, even I know that. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. We're world leaders, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that I, I actually would, I often think that the 1960s and 70s were the best time to be alive. If I could have been alive during that time, <laughs> I would choose those decades because I think the world was just coming to terms with, you know, all the countries were coming to terms with each other. There was a sort of a peace that was settling in Feminism was on the rise, you know, women were, you know, the, the, it was different. I think it was a good time, mm. you know, technology, um, new things were being discovered, space, satellites. It was an amazing time. It's a pretty yeah. amazing time yeah. it is. I was born in 69, so I went all through those 70s yeah. and it's a pretty amazing yeah. time. Yeah. I could still wear denim on denim. Yeah. <laughs> I, think it was I still do. It's coming back. It's coming back. I do back. all the time. <laughs> Double denim. <laughs> I could do it any day. I wouldn't care. <laughs> I'd be happy to wear it. <laughs> so for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So I was born in a little beautiful coastal town on the west coast of India. It's called Mangalore. It was a port, very special, very small, seven kilometers in radius. Mango trees, coconut trees, Aww. seaside. Yeah, so really lovely, um, nice place to grow up in. You know, grew up there, moved to Australia after marriage to my husband and uh, have two beautiful little girls, a lovely little dog. And, uh, you know, we live, on, we live close to the sea. And I think it's always that sort of attraction to be near the sea because of where I grew up. So yeah. that's, that's in, a, in a nutshell about me. I'm a doctor. I work in a really good hospital in Metro Melbourne. 
Uh, I'm a PhD student in a really good university, <laughs> nearly finished with my PhD. And it's been a really long journey from India, from Mangalore, the little town, to Australia and Melbourne. Yeah, it has been a journey and yeah. I know a little bit of your journey. So we might start, though, from why did you decide to study medicine? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, look, I, my dad is a physician. And my mom is a pathologist, so that she works in a lab. And so both doctors, really. So I had exposure to a lot of medicine growing up. They would always have these dinner conversations about various pathologies, uh, diseases, treatments. Fascinating. And then just about talking about generations, when it's roughly, I think, 1991, 1992, the television had just arrived into our home, so we were all fixated on that. I had started liking the band Queen a lot and the HIV uh, sort of had exploded onto the world and I think we just I heard about HIV for the first time in the early 90s Um, and uh, Freddie Mercury had died of HIV so that was a devastating blow to my 12 year old uh, sort of uh, girl that I was and um, and so that so I often thought, oh, HIV, and we, we need to find a cure for HIV. So I remember writing a little essay in school about HIV, and I asked my dad, can we cure this? And uh, so that was one aspect. So seeing my parents and, you know, hearing all these, hearing about all these infections, uh, that sort of a combination wanted me to, I wanted to do something in medicine. And as I grew older, my dad used to take me to the hospital, and my mom used to take me to her lab. And that was fascinating. So that's really where it started. Wow. Yeah. And so you studied medicine in India. Correct, yes. And then you practiced medicine in India. I did, yes. What was that like? Back then, no different to anything else. Uh, now, when I look back on it, it's, it was an interesting time. Fascinating. I'm very grateful to the patients and you know the, the amount of pathology or diseases that we got to see. You know, you have 1.2, at that point, there were 1.2 billion people in India. So, you know, you would see all sorts of unwellness you would see everything. You would see yeah. everything. So your exposure as a med student and subsequently as a physician, second to none, because yeah. you get, you know, it's almost like m- multiple years of exposure compressed into about five, six years of, you know, time. In, in the outpatient clinic, so the clinics, we would see 200 patients in a morning. What? Yeah, it, was, it, 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 it seems unreal looking back now because it's, it's it, you know, I can't even fathom that amount of work. Uh, doing that amount of work now but it was incredible and incredible sort of disadvantage you know it's it's it was really sad but also quite fulfilling when you can you know have a good outcome yeah so um, I think it was hard work Um, you genuinely had those 24 by 7 days where you would work Monday to Friday Monday to Saturday straight with maybe two or three hours of sleep a night Uh, Um. and that was that was everyone was doing it it wasn't would you sleep at the hospital? You had to stay in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was a resident, or we, we would call that a resident. So that's a training uh, sort of job. Uh, I, would, I was staying in the hospital. I lived in the hospital. We had a resident quarters. And I think that's where the word resident comes from. So you, you lived there and you were on call basically 24 by 7. Yeah. And so at what point in your career did you then move to Australia? I was uh, in a training program, uh, nearly finish, nearly finishing a training program to become an internal medicine physician. So that's like, a, uh, you know, what we would call 
that a general physician here, not a general practitioner. Yeah. This was a hospital physician. So I was nearly finishing that. And uh, I was old by my parents' standards at the age of 27. Um, so uh, they were keen for me to get married. And uh, I was just happy working. So I wasn't finding anyone. And uh, as I said, you know, my time was such, I was at a cusp of um, that sort of being fiercely independent versus being confined by societal expectations. So the, so the expectation was that I'd always be arranged married. So my parents found a boy. <laughs> so, you, so pause, because I want you to tell us the story of finding the boy. <laughs> okay. So, um, all right. So this was at age 27. Uh, there were no suitors in sight. My parents uh, were desperate to find me a, a, a match. And they, my sister was in Melbourne already. Uh, she's been in Melbourne from 1999. Mm -hmm. And um, this was 2007. My sister's son was two years old, our first grandchild for my parents. And they were on their way to Melbourne to you know, celebrate his birthday. And in the flight, they met my would-be husband. Uh, he was their med student because they were also teaching medicine and pathology at the local medical college in Mangalore. And they found out that um, we shared the same background. So they did a little bit of investigating about him, found his parents, connected with his parents, and his parents were, uh, did say that, yes, they were also looking for a match for him. And they came and met me. And they liked me. We matched horoscopes. Uh, we ensured that we matched on all other levels, such as language and religious background and all the other things that you would expect uh, growing up in an Indian culture. And yeah, we met and we spoke. We met online. Uh, my husband was in Melbourne at that point. So we met online. We had Skype already then. So we had some video chats. And then we got married. In two months' time. Uh, <laughs> and I met him one week before the wedding. It was an arranged marriage, and it was a very successful arranged marriage. And it's, um, it's, uh, my husband is a wonderful, supportive man. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, could you tell us your first impressions of meeting you? Um, look, I think what you, I, what, what, I think when we look at it from an Australian perspective, it all seems very strange and you know, fascinating. But when you are in, immersed in your own environment, that there's nothing unusual about it. You know, you meet people, you you decide yes, no. It's it's I, it's something that you grow up seeing other women do, um, and it's nothing unusual. You see someone, you think, okay, this person seems all right. I can hold a conversation. Um, they, you know, you whatever they look okay, they sound okay. Um, they've, you know, they've sent you almost like a resume uh, for the match. So you've met their parents, you know what their house is like. So, you know, you kind of already have a lot of background information. Yeah. So you, you either then have to decide whether you like what you hear from them or you don't like what you hear from them. That's really about it. So uh, there is no sort of mystery or, you know, this sort of spark or falling in love. None of that. It's just literally going and making an interview assessment, thinking, okay, you seem like the right candidate. Now let's see if we can really work together or, you know, whether we can have more conversations and are they pleasant? And th that's really it. It sounds like the right way to go to me, I mean, though. <laughs> honestly. Know, yes. Seriously. Like, take the sure emotion out. <laughs> yes. Make sure you match. Yeah, look, 
I, I, you know, I, I think people need to have a choice. Mm. I honestly do think so. And I think I didn't, at no point did I feel like I didn't have a choice. Yeah. My dad was very clear that I could say, no, yes. uh, this is not the person or yeah. I don't like this or yeah. something's not okay. So he was very clear that, that I had a choice. Um, and also even one week before the wedding, when I met my husband for the first time in person, my dad did say that mm. it's okay. You know, even if the wedding said, the venue said, it doesn't matter if you're not comfortable with this you can walk out. It's wow. fine. That's so, loving parents. Yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I must say that many of my friends did not have that choice. Yeah. They were locked into a, a match and they had to proceed regardless. Yeah. So I was really lucky that my parents were uh, open to the fact that if I didn't feel comfortable, I could back off. That, that was okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I did have that reassurance. Yeah. So I think, I think my parents were really good that way, where uh, that's different for a lot of other women, even to this day in India. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, but coming to the point about arranged marriages, I think in many ways you know exactly what you want. Um, so you can actually, you know, put out your uh, sort of list of requirements and mm-hmm. same for the other side. And um, yeah, you could, you know, you actually know what their home environment is like, you know what their family is like. So you already know that before you commit. Yeah. So maybe it works. Uh, you know, it really depends on your mindset. And I kind of feel like, you know, hearing you talk about that, it's more like you're kind of going, can I enter into a partnership with this person? Correct. Mm. Yes. And there's some very like objective things that you're looking for, which are going to make that partnership successful. Yes, exactly. And I think it's important to have a really solid partnership for life. Yeah. 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 And so how old was your husband when you got married? He is three years older to me. Okay. 30. Yeah. yeah, and so after your wedding, you then came to Australia. Correct. So after the wedding was on in December, early December, and I was here in Australia within two weeks. And had you been to Australia before? No. So <laughs> <laughs> it was very quiet here. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I noticed was the silence. Oh, really? It was so quiet. Where did you land? <laughs> like, I lived in Box Hill. Because I find Melbourne really noisy. I go home to Perth and I think Perth is like there's nobody living there. It's so <laughs> quiet. So I think Melbourne's really noisy. Right. Okay. Look, I, uh, I now, having lived here for the last 16 years, I couldn't live anywhere else in Australia but Melbourne. Let me put that. Melbourne's the best. Yes. <laughs> but, 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 um, when, you know, India is incredibly noisy. Yeah. Okay. It is, um, you know, it, it well, never, it's a, over no, a billion people. Yes, yeah. and there's, you know, you. It's not um, impolite to honk your horn. It's yeah. not impolite to rev your tires. Loud music, um, loud conversations, loud conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And people, like people everywhere. When I came here, there were no people. I was yes. like, where are the people? Are there people here? No <laughs> wonder it's so quiet. So it was that. I think those were my first two sort of, you know, sensory wise. I felt. There is no one and there is no one talking. <laughs> <laughs> you get a fun if you honk your horn. <laughs> and also it was December. So, you know, it was quiet yeah, because Christmas, people yeah. would have been away and things like that. So, um, and it was Box Hill. So now looking at Box Hill, I find, oh, Box Hill is such a busy spot. <laughs> but back then it was not that, it wasn't that busy. It yeah. was a very different, I think even 16 years ago, Australia was so, Melbourne was so different yeah. to what it is now. It's really yeah. changed a lot. It's changed yeah. so much. When you stop and reflect, you realize, wow, it's it's so different and so nice, mm. you know, so much nicer, I think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Had you finished your training by the time you 
came? No, I uh, had I had a choice of either staying back in India and finishing that last year of training that I had remaining yeah. to qualify as an Indian sort of physician versus coming here and starting all over again. I chose to come here and start all over again because there was no guarantee that if I would come here, that Australia would recognize me as a physician. Yeah. They would recognize my undergraduate degree after I you know, did some exams and things, but there was no guarantee that I would, there was, I might have to go through training again. Yeah. So I thought I might as well just move okay. rather than spend a year in India separate from my husband whom I need to get to know still. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I thought, no, nah, I d- didn't want to have a long-distance relationship. So made the choice to move. So then you're starting training from scratch? Starting training from scratch. That was, you know, when you said, how was your experience? I think one was the sort of, you know, just the general environment. And then the other was actually trying to find my feet back into the hospital environment and then to the career path of, you know, qualifying as a specialist physician. So I think that was the challenge. I think that was the most challenging time because, as I said, Australia was a little bit different then. And I think international medical graduates were just kind of coming in. um, And the experiences were varied. um, And we had different medical systems at that point, um, different ways of actually entering training um, and no set path for international medical graduates, whom I will call IMGs from now on. Yeah, so t- to find a job was really hard. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think I had a pile of rejections of my CV from the... I literally hit the ground running. I came here, I started sending my CVs out, not understanding that Christmas time, nothing really happens. Yeah. Yeah. But then I followed up throughout the new year, and um, uh, I wasn't really getting a job. Uh, meanwhile, I was also waiting to get my dates to sit my exams to qualify to get my undergraduate degree which is the MBBS recognized yeah. so you know you need to make sure that Australia's got a really good standard sort of way of um, you know so, uh, credentialing international medical graduates so there's there's all these exams that you need to pass and you need to show that you're competent uh, at least at the level of an intern yeah. So that's your starting point before you become a specialist doctor. So or you get into training to become a specialist doctor. So uh, I had to prove that I was as good as an intern here. Okay. And that those were the exams I was waiting for. And that took ages. Back then, they didn't have those exams as often as they have them now. So you had to wait about nine or ten months wow. to get that, to sit that exam. So And unless you had that exam, you people didn't really know where you were at and didn't want to employ you because you hadn't yet shown what your qualifications were like. So I think that was a big challenge to tell people that I am competent. I could see about 50 patients in a morning, so I can do this job. But it was hard to uh, convince people. So what did you do during that waiting period time? Um, So I uh, finally found a a job as a psychiatry uh, junior doctor, uh, which was actually one of the best things I did. It taught me how to talk to patients. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a big change when you move from a country like India, which has like a, a multiple languages. So, for example, if, I were be, if we were to be doing this podcast in India, we would have now morphed into talking in different languages already. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, um, my English uh, had a mixture of the state language, the, the, the language of the national language, and then my um, local language and my dialect. So I would insinuate words of different 
languages in, in when I spoke English, which was completely normal. Like you, you would not bat an eyelid if you were my patient and I was talking to in India, you would just, and depending on which background you were from, I would morph into talking into that language mixed with English or maybe just that language. So you're so used to thinking in different languages it gets difficult to then speak in one language. And I think being a psychiatry junior doctor really helped you kind of understand um, how to have a conversation because there's a lot of talking that's required. Uh, so that was useful. Uh, it also helped me understand the culture of the place. You know, you, you, it's, every place is different and you need to know what works, what doesn't work, what is not acceptable to say and what is acceptable to say. I think that was a really run in, a good run-in period for me because when I got to write, uh, sitting those exams, I knew how to speak. And we had to do a lot of role plays with the patients. You know, you had fake yes. patients who would then, you know, you had to take a history or you had to tell them a diagnosis. And that really helped me. Okay. So when I finally got my spot, I was ready to talk. Yeah, yeah. And so you... I mean, this is all so fascinating. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long journey. It's, it's not, certainly not unique to me. I mean, I'm sure. One of, one of my questions around that as well is, is that in Australia, it seems to me like with a lot of overseas doctors, they're mm. trying to force you to go to the country as well for qualifications. Was See, that an issue for you at all? No, look, back then, I don't think there was an exact, I don't know if there was a good, clear, this is what we want international medical graduates okay. to do. Yeah. Um, it was a very different time. Look, no one spoke about diversity, inclusion, and things like that back then. No one spoke about um, how to manage the overseas workforce that was actually coming in. There were quite a few doctors, you know. There was a good prediction that, that this would increase over time. But I think people were in the very early stages of understanding what to do. There definitely was a pathway that you could take, which was called the area of need, but it still, it did not apply to me and no one kind of forced me to take that. Yeah, okay. yeah there was no, yeah. There, in fact, no one knew what to do with me. Like yeah. they, there was no sort of advice on what I should do yeah. because like, I absolutely didn't find that person who could tell me, oh, this is the medical system. Oh, sort of like a mentorship. There was no one because I was a free agent. I was just looking for jobs. Yeah. I was not in any sort of training program or uh, any hospital. I was not an intern in any hospital. I'd just qualified. I'd just shown people that I'm at the level of an intern by passing that exam. Yeah. But I was no one's. Um, no, I was no one's baby. You didn't yeah, belong yeah, yeah. to any. Yeah. No, I didn't stream, belong to yeah. any any hospital or any sort of health service or university. I had no history. Yeah. I had no back. I had no history in Australia, so I had no, no it's nothing. Tough. Yeah. It's tough. And also, my husband was finding his own. Um, path he was yeah. also an international medical graduate and he had passed his psychiatry exams and he was just finding his feet as a specialist so you know he had absolutely no other connections to help me out either mm. and he had moved from Adelaide to Melbourne so he barely knew people yeah yeah, yeah. so how did you choose then which training program to do after you'd proven yourself as an intern <laughs> So after I, uh, so I still didn't get a job after I proved that I was uh, at the level of an intern or at the level of a very competent final year medical student or whatever it was called what, back then. What do you think that was? I don't know, but I think many a times people don't know what to do with you when you are, um, when you come from a, a, a country that is not an English speaking country. So for mm. example, if you were from the UK or Canada, you have a sort of similar system yeah. and you have similar sort of maybe values, culture. Um, I think it's easier to assimilate and connect with people. 
uh, it's difficult to connect to <clears throat> back then at least it was difficult to connect to someone who was you know a person of color um i never as a woman growing up in india you're not encouraged to have eye contact and i didn't realize that you needed to ha- have eye contact here yeah because that is you know a, a sign of trust and i w- i would never i would uh, you you wouldn't see me making eye contact mm-hmm. i couldn't with anyone with or anyone with, <coughs> with anyone that i would always be looking down that that was that was my and it was never something that was brought up as unusual because i didn't no one told me that you need to have eye contact i only picked that up as i went through i understood with time that that's what's needed so i think there were a, sort of two things one was the way i presented to people because they didn't know what to do when i presented to people the way i presented my accent was different um my the words i chose to communicate was different i waffled a lot in india we give a very long explanation for which can be explained maybe in 10 words so i was all of that so i was all of me but nothing that i felt maybe people couldn't really connect with that mm. but i was i was i was very confident as a competent doctor like i knew that i was a safe pair of hands patient pathologies are not different you know whether you're in india or in australia your heart attack would be still your heart attack and so those things i you know technically i knew i was good but i think in a way to put myself there and say i'm actually competent i'm confident i can do this i didn't know how to say that so that was i think you know a, so people couldn't identify that yeah you so i think that maybe have been one of the problems and i think the second thing is you need someone to bat for you you, you know you need someone to say this person is you know solid <laughs> they are good they're trustworthy i didn't have that because i have no history here i had no one to say hey can you you know give me a good reference because there was none yeah um and yeah so we basically moved to brisbane after that year because so they my husband wanted to you know explore next his career options in brisbane and see how he could uh, you know we basically wanted to try out new uh, new hospitals so we moved to brisbane he got a job there we moved to brisbane i found myself going to every hospital in 36 degree brisbane i remember taking the train the bus we did, we had we had the, just the one car so he would take the car to work and i would just you know have my shirt sticking to my back and go from hospital to hospital handing out my cv <laughs> like a sales agent you know it was such a funny thing and uh, people would say oh yeah we'll get back to you and never get back to me obviously oh. um so it was really difficult and i remember this one time i went to this lovely lovely lady uh, one of the hr people and i was so tired i gave her the cv and I, it was this afternoon it was really hot long journey gave her my cv and i just burst into tears and i said i'll take any job <laughs> just wow. give me anything and she said i don't have anything for you and i said okay and i left and that then a couple of days later i had a call and it was not from that hospital but it was from another hospital by the bayside in brisbane called redland hospital which i still really love that hospital and um uh, the hr person from that place called saying your cv has landed on my table and we would like to interview you okay. and i was like yay that's great and went to redland hospital got a job there okay it was a peripheral hospital um very small lovely community feel great patients really great environment and a lot of international medical graduates you know and not that far from brisbane actually 45 minute drive but not really far so i would drive um but while i was there i met 
a doctor who was also working at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane. And Princess Alexandra had a really good training program for physician trainees. And I did a clinic with this doctor, and with time, he thought I was good. Yeah. And he offered me to, you know, come and work across at the Princess Alexandra. And that was a, that was a breakthrough. Yeah. Because if I hadn't got that job at Princess Alexandra, I think I probably would have still been struggling or would have struggled for much longer. So he was your ally. He was an ally, but he had to be forced into allyship. <laughs> but you proved yourself. <laughs> like he, uh, There's a story because uh, what happened during that time was uh, I kept asking him, can I, you know, here's my CV. I would like to come and work at the PA. And he was like, yep, very encouraging. Um, but one day we were, there was this um, doctor who was traveling through Australia. She was from the UK and she was just doing jobs for, you know, to fund her travel. And she was, she, myself, and um, this doctor, this physician, we were standing together. And he just taps her on the shoulder and says, why don't you come and work at the PA? And I'm like, hang on. <laughs> I've been telling this guy I want to work at the PA for the last six months. But he just, she's just been here two days and he, or not two days, she was, she'd been there for at least a month. But he thinks that she can come and work at the PA. Wow. And I went to him later and said, you just told um, this other doctor that she could come and work at the PA. What about me? Yeah. <laughs> Can I come and work at the PA? And he was like, oh, I didn't realize. I think it's not being seen. Sometimes you do, you're not seen either. You know, yeah. you have to get yourself shown. And that was one of the things I learned out of that experience. He was really a nice person. This is not a criticism of the person that he was. It's just that sometimes people don't see you. And I think that was important. And But after that, he was my ally. He was genuinely yeah. an ally. Yeah. Yeah. It's lucky you had the guts to do that. I know. I was just oh, going to it Because, you know, I think uh, however wonderful Redland was and it was a, you know, but it was not helping me with my career progression. Yeah. You know, so while it's a it's a good hospital to work and you really feel you're making a difference because it is one of those hospitals that needs doctors, yeah. can't retain doctors simply yeah. because of the same thing, you know, career progression. Yeah. So I think it, however fulfilling it was to work there, you really needed to move on. You know, mm. you had to do other things to move on with your career so uh yes i had to do it there was no choice and i felt really um that hang on he can see her but he can't see me you know so yeah we've interviewed a few people recently and um and i've heard this thing before yeah. about you know going up and saying what about me yeah. basically yeah like it's a really common yeah. theme thank god you did i think you should um, I mean, if you don't stand up for yourself, who will? All right. So you have to. And, um, you have to be I your think own you, cheerleader. Absolutely. But at that time, I didn't look at it. At that time, it was not a bold, self-confident move. It was a desperate move. Yeah. Uh, I didn't even feel confident. I actually felt pretty terrible about myself at that point. Now, if I would do it, it would be because I believed more in myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at that point, no, it was just very, it was desperation. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to sit exams for physician um, specialist pathways if I hadn't done that. So, yeah. And the thing about not being seen, that's very true. I, I still have that sometimes when I stand at delis. Uh, but you just put your hand out and say, I'm here, <laughs> you know. Do you think that's also because you're a woman as well? I think it's a mixture of things. I think if, if you don't kind of fit into a sort of... Um, how do I say this? I think if you don't fit a particular pattern of 
what you generally normally are used to seeing then you kind of tend to be skipped yeah 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 and i don't think it's any it's not done in a sort of it doesn't come from a place of malice it no. just is a unconscious thing that people do yeah yeah and then when you actually as you know sort of assert your presence they're genuinely surprised you're there yeah you know? and of course happy. come on come on yeah. yeah it's very rare that now it's very rare that i would meet someone who would be not happy to give me something from the deli it yeah. has happened before yeah uh but it is i could say in a year it might happen once it's so interesting you sh- you share that because you know i've experienced it but you yeah. know coming back to your point about was it because you're a woman i actually do think color has yeah, a lot yeah, 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 color yeah. has a lot to do with cuz my dad has a story about this when um he was at Kmart and they had given him too much change mm. and so he stood at the customer service counter to alert them to this fact and they couldn't see him they didn't he stood there patiently for ages for yeah. ages yeah. and eventually when he finally got their attention and he was like you've given me $5 too much they were so shocked that he had stood there that whole time to then yeah. give them back money and i just sit there and part of me like it breaks my heart to kind mm. of sit there and think how much we're not visible sometimes yeah. 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 and while it might not come from a place of malice it also comes from potentially a place of you're you're not you're not visible to me because i haven't been taught to see you correct you're not a part of my gathering i yeah. think that's what it is it's it's a it, it does feel you do feel like a foreigner and you feel and you like feel, other yeah you're other yeah you you really are and you know i can probably still take it as an adult and as i said it's actually so much better now i should say that really but when it's done to my kids i find it really <laughs> difficult because my kids are true blue australian Aussie kids, you know, true blue Queenslanders, actually, um, true maroon Queenslanders. <clears throat> uh, but they, when they experienced that, like recently, about two years ago, my second child, we were at uh, a bakery and the lady kept asking her where she's from. And oh. uh, my girl couldn't really understand the question because she was little. And she kept saying from down the road. <laughs> I'm from down the road. Because she was. Yeah. And then she was like, where are you from? No, I'm asking you, where are you from? And she said, I'm from where the possums live. <laughs> because we had a lot of I possums on the roof. And that was kind of cute. And I just didn't, I didn't interfere in that conversation. Yeah. I just, just, you know, bought the bread and moved on. Uh, I just thought, you know, she's handling it. I don't have to run. But then when she came out, she was like, what was that lady asking me? Did I say the right thing? And I said, yeah, you said absolutely the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You are where the possums are from. <laughs> so you get to PA and you start your training. Yes. So PA is um a big hospital but like, you know, the Alfred or the Royal Melbourne a kind of a hospital, uh, busy, lots of people sitting exams and yeah, so it was good. Uh but I and also this the, the the person who was the director of physician training at that time who got me into the PA I was very supportive. I was um I had basically decided that I needed to have my children when I was 30. So <laughs> again, it was a cultural expectation. Yeah. And um you so were already considered old. <laughs> I was already old when I got married. So I had to make make a dif- difficult choice of 
either sitting my physician exams, which I've been dying to sit now for God knows how many years, or have a baby. And I decided to bo- do both. Yeah. <laughs> Why um, not? Why not? You mean you've done so much, you could do more, right? Yeah. And so um, I sat my written exam. So you have two parts for the exam, a written exam and then the viva or the actual patient encounters. This is not role play. You really yeah. see patients. Um, so uh, I sat both the exams um, with my little, my older child, my firstborn being six weeks when I sat the written exam and then she was about five months when I sat the clinical exam and I only sat them once and passed. Amazing. Um, so yeah, I think I count that as a really, I think it's a combination of things. Of course, my husband being fantastic, um, my child being so good and uh, the fact that I had a team at the PA who thought, okay, we are not going to worry about our pass percentage because every time someone fails, it is a sort of not a good look for the training program. Uh, so they like to have their pass percentage high. Um, but they were happy for happy to support me to sit the exam and didn't think that their pass percentage would be affected if I failed. Mm-hmm. Everyone expected me to fail because, you know, a baby and an exam are not a good combination and I would not recommend it. Would probably not do it again. Um, but I, it worked and I'm so grateful it worked because it kind of set the trajectory for the next step and the next step because we were coming back to Melbourne. And... Um, Coming, uh, we were coming back to Melbourne, but I fast forwarded that a little bit. I had a can second we, child. Can we just come back? That's yes. incredible. Is it? Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah. It, it feels is. incredible. Because not many people fa- pass those exams first go. No, they don't. And I think everyone has their own sort of, you know, story around those exams. It, they're not easy. I think they're one of the toughest and defining moments of a lot of physician um, physicians' lives, careers. Um, they're traumatic. And... Um, and there's a lot weighing on it, right? Because your tra- your specialist training depends on it. A lot of people are, you know, there's expectations for the hospital has expectations that you pass. Your training program has expectations that you pass. You have expectations that you pass. You're practically an adult and you're still sitting exams. And yes. Your colleagues. The your, pressure. Your, yeah, yeah. And everybody else is, you know, some you know, you know, people who've chosen other fields are actually, you know, actually having families and living lives as adults in their 30, 30 two-year-old adults doing other not things. Studying and not studying. Not yeah. studying and struggling. And, you know, but that's the life of being a doctor. I suppose you you never stop. But um, you had a brand new baby on I top of that. I had a brand new baby. Whew. I had a brand new baby. And you were in a relatively new country with not a lot of support Correct. around you. And I must say, looking back, I still did not know how to interact with people. <laughs> <laughs> it took a long time. Uh, I think I'm still learning because, well, I think you you're know, doing pretty good today. I, um, thank you. <laughs> But I think it's incredibly hard. I mean, just think about moving from Australia to India, learning the language the way that local area would speak it, and then looking after patients, giving difficult diagnoses or explaining treatment options or taking, you know, personal histories, you know. So there are so many things that you have to do and you have to do it with a degree of respect and sensitivity around whatever you do. If you don't know how to interact, that makes it that much harder for one, the patient to trust you, and two, for you to get the information mm-hmm. that you need. And I think it took me a very long time to actually get it to a point where I feel comfortable. I hope I'm making the patient comfortable. So, it, But it's such a long journey, and you wish sometimes it was a bit shorter, and I genuinely hope that the international medical graduates who come now from non-English speaking countries or uh, English as second language countries and have an easier path. Yeah. Have that sort of mentorship or 
a sort of onboarding experience, onboarding sort of, uh, you know, some sort of teaching or something that's a bit different to what you would expect for someone who moves from New South Wales to Victoria, you know, uh, so that they all know these interactions, have a sort of a shorter, a shortcut, if you like, to instead of taking 16 years to kind of get there. But anyway, yes, I had the baby, sat the exam. It was incredibly hard. I think it was a very, it was, it made me realize I could achieve a lot. I think, you know, you you have a little human that you have to keep alive and you still have to do your other things that are important to you personally. Um, I think that was a good experience and a terrible experience at the same time. Mm. But I realized that, you know, we have untapped potential. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you so need your village. You though. do need a village. Yeah. But just thinking yeah. about, like, when you do something like that, I'm like, it's incredible. It really is an incredible thing to do. And then you sort of go, okay, well, I, I did that. What could I do next? You know what yeah. I mean? Well, yeah, good I question. Yeah, <laughs> what could I do next? Because honestly, what can't you do? I still had a training <laughs> program to finish. And I uh, had my second child uh, relatively quickly. Um, so she, I had two children under two. Um, so, and I still completed my training program within the time frame that was needed. And if my children ever hear this podcast in future, they did not have anything lacking from me as a mom. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it, was, it does take a personal toll on you from a health perspective, but I ensured that I was also available to them, and I still do. Um, in all ways that they would need. Yeah. So we, we uh, I, th- I say we because it was always a collective effort. I think children and husband are involved with every success. Um, and so we finished the exams. I finished my training and we moved back to Melbourne. And the same doctor who had moved me from Redland Hospital to PA backed me to the hilt, called people in Melbourne saying that you, you really should employ her. You want her. Yeah. 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 So I am eternally <laughs> grateful for that allyship. Um, so and uh, yeah, so I came here. I got a job at the Northern Hospital and subsequently I moved to the Austin and it was no looking back from there, really. Um, mm. And you specialized in? I specialized in infectious diseases. Um, I did my uh, all my training within Metro Melbourne. I was incredibly lucky to train in really top-notch hospitals. I had exposure to amazing resources, expertise, mentors. So uh, I think I really <laughs> deserved being there. And uh, I, I think I got there in the end, you know, to specialize in a field that I really liked. And I did work with HIV uh, as well, just remembering that essay from third grade, I think it was. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah, full so circle. It, it did come to full circle. I still think about it, you know, when I go to clinic, I just still think about the full circle. Yeah, yeah. And so reflecting on what it was like practicing medicine in India yeah. and what it's like practicing medicine in Australia, yeah. what is that experience? Um, so India, depending on where you are, uh, the... It can be incredibly fulfilling or quite frustrating sometimes because you want to do all these things or you, you know that there are these things available to help your patients, but you simply don't have one the resources in the hospital or the patients don't have the resources to uh, access those uh, yeah. treatments or you know, you know whatever the requirement is, tests. Um, 
So you're sometimes completely hamstrung by the fact that the patient can't pay. And if they can't pay, they don't get it. Um, so I've lost track of the number of times I've had to tell families in India that um, we are sorry we can't treat you because you can't pay for any more tests. Wow. It's got to be so crushing. It is, it is really hard. Um, you have to develop a really strong shell. Mm. Um, sometimes it goes completely against what you would think as your ethos of being a doctor, which yeah. is, you know, connecting with people and being sensitive. But no, you have to be pretty hard about it because otherwise it'll break you. Yeah. Um, there are times when you had to turn people back from ED, uh, basically saying we cannot have you here. Um, and in, in, in India uh, back then, I'm not sure how it is now, so I can't speak for now. Uh, but back then, if your patient needed blood, then you needed the patient's family to give you a bag of blood. Mm. Yeah. So blood for blood. Yeah. So you had to, they had to come and give you a bag of blood. So all those things were really hard, particularly if patients needed a lot of blood transfusions and urgently, you had to just, you know, somehow manage to ensure that there was a line of family members. To do that. Yeah. So that, that, so resources, having limited resources was very hard and difficult. And, you know, the fact that you can't actually practice evidence-based medicine a lot of times because of that, those constraints. Australia is um, the opposite. You have, you know, all sorts of resources available. You have access to experts easily, particularly when you're working in sort of, you know, the high-level uh, tertiary hospitals. Every test is available. Patients have, you know, I could not believe how amazing it was. Even when I was working in Redland, which was a level one hospital, which a level one basically is that they have a, they don't have an ICU and they don't do all the specialist procedures, um, but they manage an emergency. And when I used to work in Redland, I used to think, amazing, you get all this for free, <laughs> you know, the suture kits, uh, the stitching kits and the... Um, all the dressing packs and the, you know, the IV drips, everything was top-notch quality. I, I mean, you wouldn't get that for free in India. You'd have to pay You'd have for to it pay. as a patient. And, you know, when you open a glove, like say you want to do a procedure and you need sterile gloves, you have to think in India. You can't open that glove if you're not going to use it because that's 700 rupees or 800 rupees that the patient has to pay if you oh. even just make a little rip. So you can't open the glove unless you're actually going to use it. But sometimes here we would open the glove and then we'd be like, oh, actually, I might do the other thing. And that glove is gone. It's because the bean. Yes. Yeah. But and, you know, all the we had all these little drapes, cotton drapes that we would use in Australia. We still use them. But there's too many in a pack sometimes or you may not need all of them. You just would get rid of the ones that you opened because you opened it. You can't use it again. Yeah. And rightly so, I think. But also it's the amazing material amazing fabric you know like you could use it to clean your car and things yeah. like that. <laughs> just so, not a patient you can't, no, a you patient. can't use it for the patient but i would look at it and think oh you don't, don't chuck that mm. um so it took some time to adjust to the difference um of you know having very limited resources to having a lot of uh, you know access to everything literally you know um, I and bet you're still really careful what you use. I'm, yes, I have I learned. I, yeah. I have actually really learned to be, and I still am, and I'm, I think I'd like to hang on to that forever, is really thinking before I order a test or order a sort of, you know, X-ray or even if it's an X-ray, I think about it, honestly. Yeah. 
um, or yeah, and that's really helped me with my infectious diseases training because antibiotics are precious and yeah. you know, I really think 10 times before I uh, think, oh, is this the right antibiotic or is this the right number of days of antibiotics? So I think it's helped incredibly, but it's such a different world. It's such a different world. And um, uh, it's, it's neither, not to say, I mean, I think you should be able to provide your patient with everything they need when they're sick to make them better. So, but, and that's not accessible all the time to, in India. So it's, wow. it's And in other parts of the world. Like yeah. And in know, other parts yeah. of the world. Yeah, it's not just India. I don't yeah. think yeah. sometimes we in Australia realise how fortunate we, we are. We are very fortunate. We are very lucky. I think we, I appreciate, and I'm, I, I'm, the, I'm very grateful that I can practice the kind of medicine I'd like to practice here. So one thing you said earlier is that you had to learn how to kind of be here make eye contact, yes. all of that kind of stuff. How did that translate into the way you presented yourself as a doctor here? Oh, my God. Okay. I think I have two personas. <laughs> I think I have, and I think now, I actually now, like, honestly, today, I think I am different. I'm a different person as a doctor in my clinic um, to when I'm actually trying to be uh, good socially or trying to actually go to someone and say, you should employ me. I'm two different people. I'm, I think I've got it with the patients. Yeah. I really do. I think I can. I, I genuinely enjoy. I think I'm the most authentic with my patients. I can connect. I can, you know, I think get a reasonable history to make a good diagnosis. You have so a great question you ask your patients. Do I? Yeah. I have many questions. You do have, but I remember you telling me um, that when you're taking a patient history, you often ask them. Oh, you mean about how I ask them where they're from? <laughs> no, not that question. Which one? The question where you say, what do you think is wrong oh, with you? Oh, yes. That's my favorite question. Um, I always ask people what they think is their diagnosis. Yeah. I think it's very useful because... Because they're often right. They're often right or yeah. they know or sometimes they, you might have actually completely overlooked something that is important to them um, and which we, I think, in a busy sort of medical practice where we would like to quickly, you know, see patients, I think you it's a risk to m miss that. Uh, there are times when people come in and then, they come, then you realize that the problem is completely different, unrelated. There are other stresses. People are sometimes really worried about what's going to happen to, to their dog. You know, like there are so many different stories that come out. Um, but I think asking that, I always ask that question. What do you think is wrong with you? Or what do you think your diagnosis, diagnosis. is? And I also actually do ask people where they're from. But I ask it saying, did you grow up here? Or what's your heritage? Because I need to know that for exposures when they, when they were kids or if they lived mm. somewhere. So I do ask that question. I just wondered if you meant that. <laughs> um, but... Um, Yes, that is a very important question. I would recommend that question highly <laughs> to whoever wants to ask that question. I think it's. I think you can never, you can use that in other fields too. And I have seen you at work because you and I have the privilege of working on your PhD together. Um, and I have noticed you have changed the way you dress. Yes, um, I have. Um, so as I was saying, sixteen years. Uh, when when I first moved here, we, we didn't really talk about diversity and inclusion. It, it wasn't even a word in my mind. Um, and uh, uh, the desperation to be one of the crowd was important. And to assimilate was essential. 
um, all through my medical training in India and then subsequently as a trainee doctor, trainee physician uh, in Bangalore in India, I always wore a salwar kameez, which is a, tu- a long tunic. It's a loose-fitting tunic, very comfortable with the sort of um, loose-fitting, if you, I think, the, what would I call them? Harem pants maybe mm. if, or palazzo pants, something like that. Um, so you would wear that and that's the most comfortable dress. Like you could do anything in that. Uh, you could do medical procedures, you could do cardiopulmonary CPR, all of that. You could so do yoga, you, you could do whatever. <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally the like most <laughs> easy and very forgiving outfit and very beautiful. Like you could have different fabrics and colors. And I miss that. And um, anyway, years passed, you know, wearing trousers and shirts and skirts. And I was never feeling as authentic as I wanted to feel. And it was really important to feel that, but I couldn't. And... And I had all these beautiful salwar kameezes at home. And one day I realized, look, my patients have stopped asking me where I'm from (laughs) a long time ago, which they would, you know, uh, early days. I would often be asked whether I trained here or where I'm from, and people would be kind of trying to suss me out. That stopped like a long time ago. What's stopping me from just being, you know, whoever I am? So I just tested it out. I started wearing my Indian clothes to work. I wore a sari uh, to a, a, a women's day gathering in Monash University a few months ago. No one said anything. And then I just loved the fact that I could actually wear my Indian clothes. And nobody actually commented on anything. And the comments I got were actually very positive. In fact, a patient wanted to know where they can actually get this outfit online. <laughs> I think the important thing is I, what I realized was it took me 16, nearly 16 years to feel like I am finally feeling like I belong and I belong wholly as me and with my own cultural, I can bring my own culture to work in the form of dress or talk or behavior or face or whatever, but I can bring my whole self to work. But it's taken me about 15 and a half years to do that. I hope that it's a shorter journey for someone else. If they want to feel authentic in whatever they're wearing, of course, it has to be socially acceptable outfits, but um, but it, but if they feel like they should you know i wish that their journey is a bit shorter than mine to feel like they can bring their whole authentic selves to their workplace do you think it's because australia is growing up i think australia has incredibly changed i have to say that i i I see it i really do um and i think it's also important that we, we we bring that attention right yeah so i think one of the things was also making that statement that i'm I'm of Indian background. I'm very proud of my heritage, but I'm here and I would like to be here. I'm here. My children are Australian and I am giving back to this community. But as myself, Mm. I don't have to be wearing trousers all the time. Mm. I don't have to be wearing black to belong to Melbourne. Um, So those sort of things, I think I just felt I just felt that it was time to really be me. And I think Australia has grown up and it has uh, and we have to bring that attention when Australia reverts sometimes to being 16 years before, you know, like, you know, at the deli or when someone's saying something that you don't feel is culturally appropriate, you just say it. Why would you? I think it's easier for me now to call it out as well. Um, If someone says my English is good, then I... You know, now know what to say to that. But in, in the past, at interviews, people would say, you grew up in India, but you speak good English. And I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, those sort of things. Don't make assumptions. And I think that those assumptions are a lot lesser now. But by having women like you in a workplace, like 
you'll make other people's journeys shorter. Uh, that is absolutely my you're aim. the example. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I think um, a major challenge was not seeing people like me. Yeah. Um, throughout my journey, I think I barely saw another woman of color in trying to get a, get ahead in their career in medicine. And when I say a woman of color, I'm talking about a woman of color who has come from overseas, mm-hmm. not someone who's grown up here. They also have their challenges, and I'm not um, belittling that, but I'm just saying I could not see me in anyone. Mm. And I think that and was... And you couldn't hear you in anyone. No, there was no one. So I couldn't find that hope. Yeah. You know, like, for example, when I said I grew up in a country where Indira Gandhi was the prime minister, oh. I've seen, heard... Anything was possible. If Indira Gandhi could be the prime minister, I could be the prime minister. I was actually in a more feminist environment and a more can-do environment when I was growing up than when I came here in those initial years. So not seeing that was, I think, slowed my journey in many ways. But I would not want that for someone else. I would Mm. want them to see me if they can or approach me if they want to. Or even if just seeing me is a good enough thing for them to feel like they can also be whatever they want to be. I think that's that's a, that'll be good for me. I would like that to happen very I th- much. I think yeah. you're already doing it. I hope so. You are 100%. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is you're doing a PhD. Yes. Th- oh, yes. Oh. I mean, that's massive. <laughs> yes. So I have been looking... Because she's not busy enough as it is. <laughs> Look, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if any of your listeners could tell me, but I have been looking for another international medical graduate. This is very specific. This is like the matchmaking. I'm looking for a woman of color, doctor, international medical graduate, who has been able to secure a PhD position in a university like the one that I'm doing in, and also an NHMRC scholarship. I want to meet that person because that was the person I was searching for desperately in 2020, uh, 2019, and I could not find them. So if there's someone like that out there... (laughs) Please get in contact. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to meet this person because I want to see this person. And it's really important. I cannot tell you how important this is. This is something that I've been actually thinking of approaching universities and asking. Do you have a person like this? Because I'd like to meet them. Yeah. Yeah. It is so rare. And so, you know, I just think keep talking, keep presenting. You know, it is an incredible story. But, you know, one of the dreams that I have is we see ourselves. Yeah. And I know, like, I've been here since I was three, so slightly different because my English was always Australian. (laughs) But um, I want to see us in the leaderships of the universities and in the leaderships of the hospitals. Like, there's still not people of colour at that level. And so there's still a way for us to go. But I do think, you know, we're getting there. Like, we are... Yeah. Taking up space. Yeah, I think it's like, you know, I was walking on a ward route. I was, was walking to the ward with someone and uh, we were just having a conversation about about an antibiotic sort of plan. And, you know, we're talking about evidence for that plan. And I said, oh, that was because, you know, years ago, a bunch of men sat in a room and decided that that was it. That was going to be the antibiotic of choice and that was going to be the duration of days that the patient would need. And he said, oh, you sound like you're not very pro-men. And I was like, no, no, I'm not. I'm all for everyone. I just think everyone needs an equal sort of space under the sun. It's not about getting rid of people yes. who are under the sun already. There's enough space under the sun for everyone. And I think all those people, your, your, 
leadership or your um, the doctor you see or the the place you, your politicians or whoever the, they they should actually be representative of your society community. your mm. community mm. you should be able to see some faces that you you relate to uh, you know and i think that's essential mm. so i i don't feel like people have to move to give me my spot i think people should just make space mm. yeah and stay where they are uh, but enable i think it's very important to enable people lift people up which lift you do dash oh. <laughs> i think you always have to lift people up yeah yeah well thank you so much for coming and sharing your story and being 100% yourself <laughs> yes and i must just say <laughs> no i must just say because you know a podcast is not a visual media i'm very disappointed you didn't wear your beautiful salva coming yes. today and you've come in melbourne black but I that's have. okay i'll forgive you for it <laughs> hi fiona here thanks for taking the time to listen to the xyz experiment podcast and don't forget to leave a rating and review if you enjoyed our show tell all your friends and family and subscribe Follow us on Instagram at the XYZ Experiment for all the latest updates and news. Our original music was composed and performed by Luke Champion.